This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit shalcedon.edu to download this book in PDF. The One and the Many by R.J. Rushjini. Copyright 1971-2007, Mark R. Rushjini. Shalcedon Ross House Books. Chapter 5. Rome, the City of Man. Section 1. The Priority of the State The exaltation of Greece often goes hand in hand with the deprecation of Rome. Rex Warner, in The Greek Philosophers, for example, regards Roman thought as merely imitative of Greek philosophy and as a branch of it. Marrow has rightly observed that, quote, modern historians have not always done justice to the greatness of the Roman achievement, end quote. And C.N. Cochrane, in Christianity and Classical Culture, has done much to re-establish the importance of Roman thought as well as to indicate its failure. Certainly, humanists will find a better homeland in Rome than in Greece. Virgil clearly stated that the Roman ideal, quote, but thou, O Roman, learn with sovereign sway to rule the nations. Thy great art shall be to keep the world in lasting peace, to spare the humbled foe, and to crush to earth the proud. Visual's words were written centuries after Rome was established, and before Rome fully became an empire, and yet they express clearly what was implicit in Rome from its origin. Greece began its history as families and clans which became city-states. Its religion moved from the religious centrality of the family to the centrality of the city-state. Firstal de Collanges in The Ancient City saw the same pattern in Roman origins, and certainly there is much to suggest it. There is, however, a strong body of evidence to affirm the contrary, the priority of the city of Rome to the Roman family and the creation of a strong family as an act of state. It is today a mark of intellectual respectability to treat ancient records as non-historical, but even an elementary respect for the Roman records points to a rather startling conclusions. Two boys, abandoned twins, set out to found a city. Romulus ploughed a furrow as the first wall around the planned city, with the trench or furrow as the moat, and the overturned earth as the wall. By this act, he created his sacred city. His brother, Remus, expressed his contempt for the wall and moat by leaping across them into the city, whereupon Romulus killed him at once, declaring, So perish all who ever cross my walls. Rome thus began first with two boys abandoned by their family, and second with the murder of a brother as its first sacrifice. The priority of the city to the family is emphatically set forth, but this is not all. Third, the first citizens were not members of a common family or clan, but neighbouring shepherds, outlaws and stateless people. The city made them Romans, not ties of family or of blood. Fourth, Roman family life and Rome's first alliance began by an assault on the family when the womenless men joined in the rape of the Sabine women. With an ensuing war against their fathers ending in peace and a very close alliance when the Sabine women who had been carried off by the Romans interceded with their fathers to restore peace. 
a Sabine king, Titus Tatius, then shared the throne with Romulus. These stories, very much at odds with the origins of other peoples, embarrassing to many later Romans and clearly hostile to the idea of the priority of the family, have the ring of truth. The family indeed was powerful in Rome, but it was the creature of the city. The city was not an outgrowth of the family. Priority did not belong to the family or to race, although the later aristocracy tried to maintain such a thesis, but to the city. For Rome began as a city and then created the Roman people and the Roman family. <clears throat> Only the rigidity of evolutionary presuppositions has obscured this obvious fact from scholars. The family was the creature of the city as was marriage, for the only legally recognised marriages in Rome were the marriages of citizens. The right to contract a legal union was, like the right to vote, eligibility for magistracy, and the right to serve in a legion, a right of citizens only. The same was true of the right to possess, acquire, and bequeath property, and originally most land was periodically reallotted by the city. The people were of the city, and the plebs of the country. The function of Roman religion was pragmatic, to serve as social cement and to buttress the state. Section 2. Cicero and the Rule of Reason At a later date, Cicero expressed this quite frankly. Quote, so in the very beginning, we must persuade our citizens that the gods are the lords and rulers of all things, and that what is done is done by their will and authority, that they are likewise great benefactors of man, observing the character of every individual, what he does, of what wrong he is guilty, and with what intentions and with what piety he fulfils his religious duties, and that they take note of the pious and the impious. For surely minds which are imbued with such ideas will not fail to form true and useful opinions. End quote. This, of course, represented a self-conscious use of religion, which, while in the Roman tradition, lacked the integrity of the earlier position. Grimal is correct in speaking of Roman immorality of the early period that its distinct aim was the subordination of the individual to the city. This was true also of Roman religion. The meaning of the word pietus, descriptive of the religious man, is revealing. A man was pious if he recognised, admitted and moved in terms of his subordination and obligation to God, man, family and the state. He discharged his duty where duty was due because of, its, of sacred relationships. The framework for the religious and familial acts of piety was Rome itself, the central and most sacred community. Rome strictly controlled all rights of corporation, assembly, religious meetings, clubs and street gatherings, and it brooked no possible rival to its centrality. One of the reasons for the later supremacy of the military bodies over Rome was the lack of any organised bodies within the state to provide a counterbalance to the two swollen bodies which became the rulers of the empire, the army and the abiding and growing civil service. The state alone could organise. Short of conspiracy, the citizens could not. 
On this ground alone, the highly organised Christian church was an offence and an affront to the state, and an illegal organisation readily suspected of conspiracy. Pietus meant the first observance of ritual and relationship, quote, between beings anywhere in the universe. Pietus is first and foremost a kind of justice on the immaterial plane, maintaining spiritual things in their due place, end quote. A related verb is piare, which refers to the act of wiping out a stain, an evil omen, a crime. A man who violates the order of things, like a son striking his father, quote, is a monstrum, a prodigy contrary to the order of nature, end quote. <clears throat> Closely related to this concept of piety was the idea of genius, quote, a divinity symbolizing the spirit, the religious principle inherent in a being or a place, even in a college, end quote. Basic to this belief was the concept of continuity and the imminent divinity in all being. Quote, the worship of the emperor's genius was one of the many elements which led up to Caesar worship, end quote. From 195 BC on the Dea Roma cult, begun in Smyrna, grew into, quote, a new and potent abstraction, the idea of the Roman people and their city as a divine personality, end quote. This idea was not foreign to Rome in its developed concept of the God-King, quote, as may be seen in the old legend of the apotheosis of Romulus into the divine figure of Quirinius, end quote. The discrediting of kingship in early Rome led to a dislike of the idea of a god-king, but not to a rejection of its religious foundations. Power, wherever and however manifested, whether for good or for evil, was an indication of the presence of imminent divinity. Hence, diseases were raised in times of plagues, in plague to the ranks of deity, temples built to them and sacrifices made as Febris, fever, Mephitis, Cloacina, and Verminus, wormy during a plague among cattle. The growth of the cult of Rome and the rise of a cult of the god-king whenever a strong ruler appeared were thus inevitable and logical outgrowths of the Roman faith. The conflict of Christianity with Rome was thus political from the Roman perspective, although religious from the Christian perspective. The Christians were never asked to worship Rome's pagan gods, they were merely asked to recognise the religious primacy of the state. As, French, as Francis Legger observed, quote, The officials of the Roman Empire in time of persecution sought to force the Christians to sacrifice not to any heathen gods, but to the genius of the emperor and the fortune of the city of Rome, and at all times the Christians' refusal was looked upon not as a religious, but a, as a political offence. Whatever rivalry the Christian church had to face in its infancy, it had none to fear from the deities of Olympus." End quote. The issue then was this. Should the emperor's law, state law, govern both the state and the church, or were both state and church, emperor and bishop alike, under God's law? Who represented true and ultimate order, God or Rome, eternity or time? 
The Roman answer was Rome and time, and hence Christianity constituted a treasonable faith and a menace to political order. The Roman answer to the problem of man was political, not religious. This meant, first, that man's basic problem was not sin, but lack of political order. This Rome sought to supply religiously and earnestly. Second, Rome answered the problem of the one and the many in favour of oneness, the unity of all things in terms of the state, Rome. Hence, over-organisation, undue simplification and centralisation increasingly characterised Rome. Although he sees it as a yearning for their simple past, William Carroll Bach cites as one of the causes of Rome's failure the fact that, quote, they confused simplicity with strength, as if one could not exist without the other, end quote. However real the differences of Rome from other ancient cultures, it still subscribed to the basic myth and dialectic of chaos and order, and the Republic was firmly committed to the primacy of order. The necessity of and the revitalising powers inherent in chaos were recognised, and hence the festival, the Saturnalia, with its controlled, limited and ostensibly revivifying chaos. When order was in crisis and endangered, the amount of chaos permitted was increased. Thus, cults such as the Bacchanalia were permitted in Rome as a consequence of the devastating challenge to the Roman order by Hannibal. In the court case brought about by Abutius, it was held that almost half the population was involved in the Bacchanalia, which required total defilement as a condition of entrance, the systematic violation of all moral laws as their law. Quote, the holiest article of their faith was to think nothing a crime. End quote. The cult was not only involved in sexual perversions, but also, like such cults then and now, aimed at political power and control and was involved in murder, fire, in, in murder, falsifying evidence and forging signatures and wills. The Senatorial Decree of 186 BC abolished the Bacchanalia from Italy, except for minor local cults. Julius Caesar may have reintroduced it. It appeared certainly in connection with other foreign cults of chaos in the days of the emperors. Although the Roman festivals were often expressions of the chaos faith, of the chaos faith, they were so thoroughly controlled by order, the Roman state, that chaos had to use foreign forms, rather than the historic Roman myths when it gained its ascendancy. Hence the extensive presence of Oriental cults in the empire. The Romans tended to identify chaos with the body and its appetites and reason with order. The roots of Western asceticism are extensively bound up in this dialectic rather than biblical Christianity, which is hostile to asceticism. To submit to the pleasures of the flesh, however enticing, was to submit to chaos and to dethrone order. The older Romans were thus distrustful of sex. Of Marcus Cato, Plutarch wrote, quote, Manilius, also, who, according to the public expectation, would have been next consul, he threw out of the Senate, because, in the presence of his daughter, and in open day, he had kissed his wife. He said that, as for himself, his wife never came into his arms except when there was great thunder, so that it was for jest with him that it was a pleasure 
Bethlehem when Jupiter thundered. End quote. When Cato and other Romans, like him, kissed their wives without thunder, it was, quote, for the purpose of detection, so that if they had been drinking, the odour might betray them, end quote. The women fought back at this drinking uh, fought back at this by drinking spiced wine in which the smell of spices would be stronger than the smell of alcohol. While Cato may have been more rigorous than most, he was definitely in the Roman tradition regarded as old-fashioned in his day, but truly Roman. Marcus Tullius Cicero, 106-43 BC, was in the same tradition, a Roman conservative, that is, a champion of reason against chaos. For him, the equation was a simple one. Knowledge meant order, and error meant disorder. For Cicero, order meant law, and law meant reason. Quote, True law is right reason in agreement with nature. It is of universal application, unchanging and everlasting. It summons to duty by its commands, and averts from wrongdoing by its prohibitions. And quoted later, Law is the highest reason implanted in nature. This reason, when firmly fixed and fully developed in the human mind, is law. Law is intelligence. The origin of justice is to be, bound, is to be found in law, for law is a natural force. End quote. <clears throat> for Cicero, nature was not fallen, but normative, and hence the source of justice. The world of nature, the cosmos, or order of being, includes both God, or gods, and men, and they share in a common reason. Quote, Therefore, since there is nothing better than reason, and since it exists both in man and God, the first common possession of man and God is reason. But those who have reason in common must also have right reason in common. And since right reason is law, we must believe that men have law also in common with the gods. End quote. This order, which is basic to both divine society and human society, makes them one makes them one world. Quote, Hence we must now conceive of this whole universe as one commonwealth of which both gods and men are members. End quote. This law or order is given and ultimate. Quote, law is not a product of human thought, nor is it any enactment of peoples, but something eternal which rules the whole universe by its wisdom in command and prohibition. Thus they have been accustomed to say that law is the primal and ultimate mind of God. End quote. Although men had been accustomed to say God, Cicero was basically committed to saying law or reason. In Scipio's dream, Cicero wrote, quote, Know then that you are a God, if a God is that which lives, feels, remembers, and foresees, and which rules, governs the body over which it is set, an immortal spirit moves the frail body. End quote. If Cicero was a god, then why not Caesar? In the spring of 54 BC, Cicero indeed wrote to Julius Caesar in Gaul, quote, You will see from this letter how convinced I am that you are a second self to me. End quote. The gods gave an especially high place to the saviours of state. Quote, all men who have saved or benefited their native land or who or have enhanced its power are assigned an especial place in heaven where they may enjoy a life of eternal bliss. 
for the supreme god who rules the entire universe finds nothing at least among earthly objects more pleasing than the societies and groups of men united by law and right which are called states the rulers and saviors of states set forth from that place and to that place return End quote. the true order pleasing to whatever gods may be is thus the state this means that time, history, is the central and determinative area of being, arena of being, and the state is the locale of its meaning as it becomes incarnate. There is no eternal decree emanating from God to make eternity determinative of time. The gods and men are both subject to chance, and, quote, it is not in the power even of God himself to know what event is going to happen accidentally and by chance. End quote. Cicero was ready to accept divination as a religious exercise of state, as a necessity in keeping the populace religiously respectful of authority, but in practice he disbelieved it utterly. When he wrote The Republic, Cicero favoured maintaining the rights of augury and of auspices because of their historical part in Rome, quote, because of his belief in obedience to law and because, as a member of the aristocratic party, he thought augury and auspices the best means of controlling the excesses of democracy. The area of determination and destiny was time and history, and more specifically, the state. And in answer to the question, what is a state? Cicero made it clear that a true state is reason, and the law and order which flow from reason. Accordingly, he could say of his exile in 58 BC, during the Clodian upheaval, quote, I was not exiled from a state which did not exist, end quote, because it had forsaken reason. Cicero's answer to the question, what is freedom, was this, the power to live as you will. But the only man who truly lives as he wills is the one who follows the things that are right. Thus, if the state be ruled by reason, or by philosopher-rulers, then, however totalitarian its law, its citizens are, for Cicero, free men. The issue between the aristocrats and the People's Party, led also by aristocrats like Caesar, was not liberty but power. For the aristocrats, at their best, as in Cicero, freedom was the rule of reason as represented in the old order. For the democrats, freedom was the triumph of force, power of planned overturning or chaos. Cicero had been ready to grant extraordinary, extraordinary powers to Pompey, involving possible innovations to preserve order. His readiness briefly to see some good in Julius Caesar was grounded in the hope that Caesar would champion rational order. Dickinson maintained that Caesar represented instrumentalism and Cicero constitutionalism. The distinction is a thoughtful and a valid one if we avoid reading the modern connotations into instrumentalism, and especially constitutionalism. Constitutionalism for Cicero meant reason, and instrumentalism for Caesar meant the creative force of sheer power. Power could crush, forgive, and regenerate. Power, not reason, was the lifeblood of the state for Caesar, who saw the conservative senators as unrealistic fools. Both parties were moving towards a showdown, and towards an incarnation of their faith. Cicero earnestly saw his standard of reason as the hope, 
and himself as representative of reason, and looked back fondly to the time when he had been hailed saviour of the country. Later, he was able to hail Octavian, hopefully as this heaven-sent young man. Cicero spoke of knowledge as more exalted than God, and hence he could call the learned Plato the god of philosophers. Everything in his thinking called for an incarnation of reason as head of state, but the times created instead an incarnation of power as head of state. And in this Cicero had a hand, as did others before him, as they stripped religion from reason and left no moral obstacle to the democratic demand for chaos. The controlled use of chaos in festivals Cicero recognised as a valid part of Roman life. Interestingly, he defended Gnaeus Plancius before a jury in 54 BC, declaring, quote, You say that he raped a ballet girl. We hear that this crime was once committed at Atina by a band of youths who took advantage of an old privilege allowed at the scenic games, especially in country towns. What a tribute to the propriety of my client's youthful days. He is reproached with an act which he was permitted by privilege to commit, and yet even that reproach is found to be baseless. End quote. But now the rape of the Roman Republic was in process. Violence becoming a means to omnipotence. Cicero, as we have seen, held that reason, law, is a natural force, a very real power, and the true means to omnipotence and true order should be reason. But even as the body could be ruled by sensuality and its chaos rather than by reason, so could the body politic. The wise man, and Cicero believed himself to be wise, controlled his sensuality by reason, governing the power of chaos by the power of divine intellect. He regarded sensual indulgences not as sins, but as surrenders to chaos, as abandonments of the true order of reason. Sex was thus to be distrusted and used with care under the control of reason. Chaos, vice, when set in motion, could not be stopped. Quote, he, therefore, who looks for a limit to vice is doing much the same as if he were to think that a man who has flung himself headlong from locus can stop his fall when he will. End quote. And this, and thus, in spite of all his persistence in hoping and in trying to re-establish the Republic, he feared Rome was done. After the murder of Caesar in 44 BC, when a friend, more respectful of Caesar than Cicero, said, There is no way out of the mess, Cicero was inclined to agree. Six or seven weeks later, he observed, quote, I was a fool, I now see, to be consoled by the Ides of March. The fact is, we showed the courage of men, the prudence of children, end quote. <clears throat> he persisted in trying and was in the end beheaded. One of his executioners being a man whom Cicero had defended in court against the charge of murdering his own father. Cicero, as a champion of the order of reason, feared sex religiously, not as a sin, but as a revolt against reason whose overindulgence meant overturning order. The atheistic philosopher-poet, Lucretius, shared the same horror of sex. Sexual passion was a chaotic and destroying power. From his perspective, quote, Yet fly such phantoms from the food of love, abstain, libidinous, 
to worthier themes. Turn, turn thy spirit, let the race at large, thy liberal heart divide, nor lavish, gross. Over one fond object thy exhausted strength, gendering long cares and certain grief at last, for love's deep ulcer fed, grows deeper still, rank and more poisonous, and each coming day augments the madness. End quote. The fearful and chaotic power of sex spelled for Lucretius both devastation and slavery. Quote, then, too, his form consumes the, toil, the toils of love, waste all his vigour, and his days roll on in vilest bondage. End quote. He counselled, as one means of escape, the studied contemplation of all the woman's physical defects and the frailties of flesh, lest her humid kisses mislead him. Every hour, man should remember the defects of the woman, lest he be in the silly net led captive and become as shameless as the dogs which copulate in the streets. Cicero, too, feared sensuality and counselled his son against it, advising training in toil and endurance of both mind and body so as to be strong for active duty in military and civil service. The service of the state was thus paramount for Cicero. Sensuality destroyed reason and hence virtue. Quote, for sensual pleasure, a most seductive mistress turns the hearts of the greater part of humanity away from virtue, and when the fiery trial of affliction draws near, most people are terrified beyond measure. End quote. Not even in retirement, said Cicero, quote, did I surrender myself to a life of sensual pleasure unbecoming to a philosopher. End quote. Like Sophocles, he felt that a great advantage of his old age of old age was deliverance from sex. Quote, we come now to the third ground for abusing old age, and that is that it is devoid of sensual pleasures. Oh, glorious boon of age, if it does indeed free us from youth's most vicious fault. End quote. <coughs> Section three Julius Caesar. Cicero avoided sensuality. Julius Caesar courted it religiously. He was, according to Suetonius, extravagant in his sexual intrigues with women and his soldiers. In his Gallic triumph, sang of his homosexual exploits with King Nicomedes. Brutus may have been Caesar's son, for his mother, Servilia, and possibly his sister, Tertia, had been Caesar's mistresses. His sexual interest was in men and women of power, including queens. Curio, the elder, called him in a speech, every woman's man and every man's woman. Cicero's conceptions of power were oriented to the rule of reason, a thorough, a thorough dictatorship but a coldly rational one. Caesar's idea of power was bluntly sexual. Suetonius reported, quote, Transported with joy at this success, he could not keep from boasting a few days later before a crowded house that having gained his heart's desire to the grief and lamentation of his opponents, he would therefore from that time mount on their heads, End quote. a term used in a double sense, one being fellatio. Cicero's dreams were the dreams of reason and of order. Caesar's dreams, seen as good omens, were the dreams of chaos and his religious associations were in terms of this. Early in his career in Spain, he dreamed of incest with his mother and the soothsayers, 
quote, interpreted the dream to mean he, that he was destined to have sovereignty over all the world, his mother whom he saw under him, signifying none other than the earth, which is counted the mother of all things, end quote. Before crossing the Rubicon some years later, we are told that he had a similar dream of incest with his mother. And as, been, as has been noted, Caesar may have restored the Bacchanalia to Rome. Certainly, his triumph marked a newly religious era in Rome, a hope in the revitalization of chaos. This very, the very overindulgence feared by Lucretius and Cicero, now seen as the new source of social vitality and power. Lucretius and Cicero represented the decline of the religion of order and of reason. Julius Caesar represented to the people of Rome political renewal and religious revival. Lucretius, who died a suicide, saw the world as declining and dying. Quote, and thus, even now, the age of the world is debilitated, and the earth, which produced all races of creatures and gave forth at birth vast forms of wild animals, now being exhausted, scarcely rears a small and degenerate offspring. End quote. Lucretius also gave a vivid picture of the crudity of Roman religion in his day, of the rash of all kinds of superstitious cults. There is no reason to doubt his testimony. Romans were agreed that it was the end of an era, and new vitality was needed. Caesar met this religious hunger with his own participation in the faith in chaos, in revolution as the means to social regeneration. There is extensive evidence of this. Because modern historians are secular in their approach, they strip history of its religious framework. But Julius Caesar moved always in a religious context and appeared as its fulfilment. As Grimal has pointed out, quote, the Roman games were essentially religious functions. They represented a ritual that was necessary for maintenance of the necessary good relations between the city and its gods, end quote. In origin, they were in part Etruscan. The chaos faith was apparent in the games. Quote, At the games of Flora, it was the custom for the courtesans, courtesans of the city to display themselves naked and in lascivious dances. The meaning of this rite is clear. Its purpose was to restore full vigour to the forces of fertility in the springtime and no one would have dared to suppress this indecent spectacle for fear of making the year barren. End quote. This was in the days of the Republic, when the games were a part of the social order and represented controlled chaos, chaos under the jurisdiction of reason. With Caesar, chaos became the primary source of social energy, and hence the games gained a new prominence and a religious and social centrality. Mannix states, quote, Julius Caesar might be called the father of the games because under him they ceased to be an occasional, an occasional exhibition of fairly modest proportions and became a national institution. End quote. Section 4. Chaos Cults The mythology of chaos cults involved extensive bestiality and it became an important aspect now of the revived cult. Women, representing the human world of reason and order, were in exhibitions under the stands or in the arena, subjected to rape by animals representing chaos and its fertility, 
by lions, leopards, wild boars, zebras, cheetahs, chimpanzees, bulls and giraffes. Sometimes small boys were assaulted by men dressed as satyrs. It is customary for scholars to seek a non-religious reason for all this in sadism. And sadism it certainly was, but it was not the case, but rather a result of a religious faith. The older Romans had been more inclined to humane actions than many another nation of antiquity. Now they had swung from asceticism to sadism for religious reasons. Their asceticism represented a religious dislike for the disturbing, chaotic effect of sex and a reverence for reason as the principle of order. Their sadism represented a religious asceticism against reason and order, an assault against all that stood for it, in the name of social regeneration, the renewing power of chaos. In Apuleius's Golden Ass, we have, according to Grant, quote, a story of sin and redemption, symbolising the greater redemption of the world to come. End quote. But the redemption is in terms of the chaos cult. Apuleius described the passion of a rich noblewoman for an ass, and he also reported a similar public sexual act in the amphitheatre, preceded by the Greek Pyrrhic dance and an allegorical religious performance concerning the gods. Bestiality as a religious act had a long religious history and a ritual role, as in ancient Egypt, where men mated with the sacred crocodile. <coughs> C.S. Sonini and Burton reported the continuing existence of such acts in, the in 19th century Egypt, where, as, quote, the sovereignist charm for, risk for rising to rank and riches, end quote, men drove off the male, leaving the female crocodile turned on her back and helpless, quote, to supplant him in this frightful intercourse, end quote. The prohibitions of the Mosaic law against sexual relations with animals were religious prohibitions directed in terms of an environment in which these things, both in Egypt and especially in Canaan, were religious acts. And significantly, Cicero, in his Laws on Religion, which are exclusively concerned with ritual and the protection of the sanctuaries from profanation and theft, includes this law. Quote, the pontiffs shall inflict capital punishment of those on those guilty of incest. End quote. As for the religious law concerning games, Cicero called for moderation. Chaos as revitalization has a long and continuing history in Western civilization, and with the French Revolution, it gained a new vitality as revolution and sexual chaos became the means to social regeneration. In the world of art, the creative artist came to be identified, as of necessity, with a social and sexual anarchist, and in popular thinking, order and morality came to mean monotony and devitalizing and innovating poles, whereas lawlessness meant liberty and power. The middle-aged fling and sexual license came into being as a grasping after renewal, and negress prostitutes came to be used as a change of luck device, and a special sin against order as a means of, reach, of a recharging of luck and power. Basic to all these manifestations, from ancient Egypt through Caesar to modern man, is one common hope. Destroy order to create order afresh, or even more bluntly, destroy order to create order.
Section 5. Cicero and Revolution Cicero saw what was coming. Quote, Wherefore, if it is the duty of a good consul, when he sees everything on which the state depends being shaken and uprooted to come to the public, to plead for the loyal support of the citizens, and to set the public welfare before his own, it is also the duty of good and courageous citizens, such as you have shown yourselves to be at every crisis in our history, to block all the approaches of revolution. End quote. To block all the approaches of revolution, this was his hope. This he attempted to do with reason and integrity, as an honest soldier and, and consul, as a dedicated proconsul of Sicilia, where he placed the welfare of Rome and the province above enriching himself and as a defender of the Republic unto death. There were not many like him. Marcus Junius Brutus, another Republican leader, respected in his day for integrity, still saw nothing unusual in lending the city of Salamis a large sum of money at 48% a year interest and then pressuring the provincial governor to use troops to collect the debt. Most Republicans were now this kind of integrity. were now of this kind of integrity. Cicero's education was directed to the solution of this national crisis. He despised ivory tower scholarship and held that, quote, that our countrymen have shown more wisdom everywhere than the Greeks, either in making discoveries for themselves or in improving upon what they have received from Greece, end quote. Because the Roman criterion was practical and pragmatic, not theoretical, he recognised the reality of Rome's decay. Quote, Men reckon that our courts of law have no strictness left, no conscience. Nay, by now, no existence worth the name. The result is that we are contemned and despised by the people of Rome. We have been groaning, and that for many years, under a heavy load of infamy. End quote. <clears throat> More than mere Oratory was involved in his intense concern over bringing veries to justice, in convicting crime, in engendered by greed, nourished by lust, and finally completed by cruelty. The Republic was at stake, and Cicero was always concerned with present reality. His Republic was not, like Plato's, an ideal concept, but a present political battle. And the reality was not good. On January 20, 60 BC, he wrote to Atticus from Rome, quote, There is not a ghost of a statesman in sight. The man who could be one, my friend Pompey, sits silently contemplating the triumphal cloak awarded him. Crassus never utters a word that could make him unpopular, end quote. In June of the same year, he referred to Rome as Romulus's dunghill. But none of this compared to the flagrant overturning of morality which was to come with the revolutionists. His Philippics, especially the second, cite the debauched nature of Mark Antony. His answer, as Definibus Bonorum et Malorum was ma made clear, was morality, the morality of reason. Moral goodness, as he told his son in De Officiis, Quote, depends wholly upon the thought and attention given to it by the mind. End quote. Moreover, quote, neither ought we to do anything for which we cannot assign a reasonable motive, for in these words we have practically a definition of duty. End quote. 
How many even of the aristocracy could follow so refined a conception of morality? Of course, for the common people, as Grant has pointed out, Cicero devised in his laws a legal structure for the employment of religion to control the people. And what social vitality was there in a system which commended itself only to a few philosophers? Quote, All the appetites must be controlled, end quote, said Cicero. But what agency of control was there when reason carried little authority with most? Section 6. Cicero and the State Cicero's state was all-absorbing and total as Caesar's. The difference rested in the source of power. For Cicero it was reason, and for Caesar the army and raw power. Cicero declared, quote, This then ought to be the chief end of all men, to make the interest of each individual and of the whole body politic identical. End quote. What freedom then remained to man? Cicero's rational state was a total and all-absorbing one, and the free man, a stoic of sorts, is the many, whose freedom is entirely an inner thing, restricted to rational acceptance of the Ciceronian state as the true order of being. Cicero saw the state's existence as conditional upon rational law, but the state, being the one and all-powerful, could function without Cicero's kind of law to exile and execute Cicero. All Cicero could say about this was that death was freedom for the mind. Man was outwardly at the mercy of the state, and according to de Fato of chance. Thus, as against necessity or fate, Cicero chose a world of chance as his way of asserting man's free will. He sacrificed the idea of the gods, moreover, to make man free. But Cicero's free man was now slave of the state, of circumstance, heredity, and all, thing, and all things else. Man, therefore, had been surrendered, as well as the gods, because Cicero's one basic reality was the state. Cochrane was right in commenting that, quote, For Cicero, no less than for Virgil, salvation is not individual, but marks the achievement of purposes which are to be realised only in the corporate life. End quote. <clears throat> this corporate life, the Roman state, was everything for Cicero. However much he talked about reason in nature, for him the reality could truly exist only in the state. In classical thought, Greek and Roman, an abstract non-temporal universal, the idea, logos, or reason of being, inevitably became temporal and concrete in a dictator or ruler because time was central and determinative, not eternity. Men posited the idea, the ideal in eternity to give themselves room for growth, to make room for process and for the reality of history and development, but because time was central and not eternity, the idea inevitably gravitated to the centre of the stage and became historical in a ruler. Everything in Cicero's thought called for an incarnate reason to save the Roman state. He sought, by advocating the composite states in his republic, to save Rome. But Rome had been a composite state and was now collapsing. As Cicero admitted to his son, Our republic we have lost forever. 
He himself, together with the aristocracy before him, had reduced their Roman order to their fiat will by denying the validity of religion except as a social instrument to keep the people in subjection. Cicero saw the revolutionists as barbarians, but in truth, his party was the truer barbarian element. Quote, a society that gives everything for material wealth that shrinks from nothing in pursuit of power is barbarous, however great its mastery of nature. End quote. Aristocratic Republican Rome had become barbarian in this sense, despite Cicero, and moved only in terms of power. It was inevitable that the army should be used as the surest road to power, and Caesar used it. And Cicero himself was not untainted and was charged by Brutus with opportunism, a charge some historians also make. He has also been accused of simply having tried to make the world safe for property. At any rate, Caesar's coming to power had all the manifestations of a religious revival. <coughs> Section 7. Caesar and the New State The religious excitement was marked. Cicero in all his writings, made no mention of what Dickinson called this orgy of hysteria, which, quote, reached its pitch when, the, when two men were offered up for human sacrifice on the campus Martius under the presidency of the pontiffs and the high priest of Mars, end quote. <coughs> Caesar's professed policy of clementia was a religious one. Clemency Mercy, forgiveness and judgment are, with modern man, purely personal attitudes, but in origin and truest meaning they are religious concepts and juridic, jurid, juridical in framework. The, profe the profession of Clementia was by Caesar a religious and regal profession, an expression of royal status. According to Stauffer, quote, he wanted power in order to practice goodness, in order to heal the world by clementia. Julius Caesar believed in a policy of clemency, end quote. His clemency was not always consistently applied, but it was in the main his policy and became the program of the People's Party. Caesar, thus, was fulfilling a religious and a divine function and the way had been prepared for a divine ruler. Philosophers of note had already received their apotheosis, Plato from Cicero and Epicurus from Lucretius, and Cicero in two speeches referred to P. Lentulus Spintha, the consul responsible, the consul responsible for Cicero's return from exile in 57 BC as the god of his fortunes. Quote, the way was thus prepared and Julius Caesar was ready to take advantage of it. End quote. Statues declared him to be a demigod and God invincible and he was given his own flamen or priest for his worship. Caesar was thus a deified man to whom divine honours were paid. His face appeared on coins where previously the effigies of gods had been figured. Caesar avowed himself to be the unconquered god, and coins proclaimed him the pater patriae, whose divine clementia was itself the object of worship. The claim of divinity was not the problem or stumbling block for Rome, it was a new step, 
but it had ancient Roman roots. The problem was the move towards kingship, which, because of the deep-rooted antipathy toward kings, excited opposition which divine honours did not. But Roman Clementia was mercy and forgiveness without grace. It altered nothing, and for all Caesar's hopes, regenerated neither man nor empire. It was a forgiveness and mercy which, in effect, tolerated and subsidised sin. And Caesar began to take his divine role very seriously. Warned of conspiracies, and against being too open-hearted, he responded by dismissing his whole bodyguard. Ferrero has described this period vividly. Quote, Meanwhile, he made promises of all sorts, possible and impossible, to everyone who came near him, and no longer even attempted to stop the wholesale, the wholesale pillage of public money which his friends were conducting under his very eyes. The dictatorship was degenerating into a senile and purposeless opportunism that recalled the feeblest expedience of the old republican government. End quote. The expectations and emotions of the people were messianic and revolutionary. The age of gold was to return, and all things were to be made new. <clears throat> quote, all this while Italy was as distracted as ever with the problem of debt, and the middle class was still feeling the pinch of the prevailing crisis, while among the poor population of Italy and Rome there was a strange recrudescence of vague revolutionary propaganda which was becoming daily more alarming to the property-owning classes. The wildest dreams were bandied about in the streets of Rome and over the Italian countryside. Caesar, with his colonies and his Parthian war, would bring back the Age of Gold. The tyranny of the rich and powerful was drawing to its close, and a newer and better government was at hand. The memories of the great popular revolution became so lively in men's minds that a certain Erephilos, a native of Magna Graecia, a veterinary surgeon by profession and no doubt more or less weak in the head, passed himself off as the grandson of Marius and immediately became the hero of the hour. Associations of workmen, colonies of veterans and even municipalities chose him as their patron, and he actually formed a sort of court around him and dared to treat Caesar and the aristocracy on terms of equality. Afraid to embroil himself with the people, Caesar did not dare to remove him, and the utmost he would do was to turn him out of the metropolis." End quote. In popular fancy, in the fantastic new games and ritual battles, in the new scope given to sexuality, in economic and political expectations, the religion of chaos and of revolution was running with free course. The assassination of Julius Caesar did not stem the fervour of this religious movement, but rather demonstrated how unrealistic the conspirators were. As Stauffer has observed, quote, the Roman people glorified the dead Caesar in a unique passion liturgy, which echoes the ancient Eastern lament for the death of the great gods of blessing, and many of whose motives show an astonishing connection with the Good Friday liturgy of the Roman Mass. Those whom I have, those whom I save, have slain me. They sang in the name of the murdered man. And Antony declared before the Temple of Venus, where the son of the goddess lay in state. Truly the man cannot be of this world whose only work was to save where anyone needed to be saved. End quote. The now divinized Caesar had given a new direction to Roman history. 
Augustus Caesar was to be more discreet in his ways, more bent on maintaining the forms of the Republic to placate the aristocrats, and more businesslike in government, but his reign was heralded as a messianic one on his coins. Quote, the symbolic meaning is clear. A new day is dawning for the world. The divine saviour king, born in the historical hour ordained by the stars, has come to power on land and sea and inaugurates the cosmic era of salvation. Salvation is to be found in, other, in none other save Augustus, and there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. This is the climax of the, ad, of the Advent proclamation of the Roman Empire. End quote. <clears throat> Section 8. The New Perversity The religion of chaos had, as we have noted, a new morality. Augustus was, although himself flagrantly adulterous, anxious to revive, by law and punishment, traditional Roman moral standards. The rising immorality was notoriously present in his own family. All his efforts were futile. The old Roman morality had been based on the asceticism of reason, and this foundation was now gone. The sensuality of chaos was the new rationale, and essential to chaos is perversity. Roman sexuality thus went from asceticism to passionate perversity. Catullus, 84-54 BC, had already charted the essential nature of this new temper in the previous generation. Catullus had to love what he despised and to despise whatever he loved. Perversity and degeneracy drew him like honey. Quote, I hate and love, and if you ask me why, I have no answer, but I discern, can feel, my senses rooted in eternal torture. End quote. This temper was now basic to love. He was wildly in love with a woman, probably a lesbian, a murderess of her husband, and faithless even to her lovers, yet he loved her, quote, more than himself and all things he ever owned or treasured, end quote. And he grieved that Lesbia's body, given up in alleyways on high roads. A homosexual, he wrote with savage hate of Gellius, to whom he was drawn, accusing him of incest with his mother, sister, and aunt, and gymnastic fornication with himself. It was with full knowledge of these things that Catullus became involved with Gellius in this evil, disastrous love that conquered me. Catullus deluded himself that Gellius would, because of their love, check your crimes, only to find himself linked to further sins. Catullus's accusation against Gellius is equally valid of Catullus. Quote, you enjoy, better than all things on earth, love that is stripped of love and is merely crime. End quote. This was the essence of chaos and the essence of Catullus's poetic inspiration. In the 2nd century AD, Juvenal reported bitterly, quote, If you want to be anybody nowadays, you must dare some crime that merits narrow Gyara, a prison island, or a jail. Honesty is praised and starved. It is to their crimes that men owe, owe their pleasure, grounds and high commands. Their fine tables and old silver goblets with goats standing out in relief. End quote. <clears throat> men actually went through wedding ceremonies with men. The old morality of Cicero was echoed by Seneca, who wrote of honesty and courage. 
and became Nero's servile and immoral attendant, declaring of Nero, he restores to the world the golden age. For Seneca, man, divine in that he is in part mind and thus shares in divine mind, was apparently under no obligation to be a man in simple matters of moral integrity. The chaos cult was exemplified in Nero's life, and although the legions finally revolted, the mob in the main remained faithful to Nero and believed, in fact, that if he, that he was not dead, or if dead, would return to lead them and to destroy his enemies according to Suetonius. There was a systematic manner to Nero's debauchery, rape, incest, perversion, the desire to overturn every moral law characterised his activity. Significantly, Nero, according to Suetonius, utterly despised all cults, with the sole exception of that of the Syrian goddess, the Atagatus the cult, a fertility cult of chaos, only to surrender it for another like faith. The Liber Pater effigy, identified with Bacchus and Dionysus, chaos cults, appeared most frequently on his coins, and his associates were apparently close to various chaos cults, Otho following Isis. When Nero died, those who continued in the tradition of Cicero and Brutus hoped to revive the Roman Republic. Significantly, they attempted this not in the name of reason, but in the name of the chaos cult. The Phrygian liberty cap of Liber Parta was adopted as the emblem of their hopes. Revolutionary cries raised in the streets, and the Senate was persuaded briefly to proclaim the return of the Republic. Their only rationale for power was anti-Republican. Nero's faith was closer to the hearts of the people. Arthur Wiggles Nero, 1930, was right in one respect. Nero was popular with the mobs of Rome. <clears throat> As the parade of emperors began, with their frequent and usual debaucheries and, at times, madness, the army raised up new emperors on their shields and then also destroyed them. It is easy to see all this simply as a long nightmare which only the consistent work of the Roman civil service overcame in order to preserve the empire. The empire did have its problems, and its long economic crisis was its central problem. Its eventual collapse was a combination of economic decline and a breakdown of meaning. But in the process, the instability of the imperial office was not the distressing fact to the peoples that it is to the modern mind. Their faith, after all, was in the regenerating power of chaos, in revolution. To see ordinary soldiers and foreigners rise up through the ranks to command the empire, preside at the games, possess women at will, shower gold on favourites and ride in triumph, was exciting and heartening to many. It was the world they demanded, where, although men could fall suddenly, they could also rise suddenly. The Romans had become gamblers, and the empire was itself a gamble. They were not Ciceronian moralists. The Atagatus cult from Syria had brought with it an ancient partner of fertility cults, the Eusurus, who had been in disrepute in Republican Rome, but were used in the empire of the Republic to subjugate peoples. The Syrian moneylenders now spread throughout the empire. The chaos of debt was added to the moral chaos. Only one element of order of major significance remained in the empire, the Christians. But their adherence was not to Roman order or to peace, but to God's order and peace. 
the Pauline epistles warned against revolutionary activity and hopes. The Christian confidence was neither in chaos nor in Roman order, but in God's regenerating power in and through Jesus Christ. Section 9. Marcus Aurelius There were attempts, of course, to restore ascendancy to reason in the reason-chaos dialectic. Most notable of these efforts was the reign of the philosopher king Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, originally Marcus Annus Verus, AD 121-180. The Republic was dead and gone, the Empire could be ruled by the reason of Stoicism. The messianic hope of the Caesars could be realised by reason. To his wife, Faustina, he wrote in 175, Quote, for there is nothing that can commend an emperor to the world more than clemency. It was clemency that made Caesar into a god, that defied Augustus, that honoured your father with the distinctive title of pious. End quote. Marcus Aurelius held to the old asceticism of reason, and in his meditations was grateful quote, that I kept unstained the flower of my youth, and that I did not make trial of my manhood before the due time, but even postponed it. End quote. He had an ascetic dislike of the body and its care. Quote, As your bath appears to your senses, soap, sweat, dirt, greasy water, all disgusting, so is every piece of life and every object. End quote. Quote, the key note of Stoicism was life according to nature, and Marcus was converted to the pursuit of this possibility by Sextus the Boeotian. By nature was meant the controlling reason of the universe. End quote. For the emperor, God and man were aspects of one universe. Quote, For there is both one universe made up of all things, and one God imminent in all things, and what one substance and one law, one reason common to all intelligent creatures, and one truth, if indeed there is also one perfecting of living creatures that have the same origin and share the same reason. End quote. The gods and men are fellow citizens of the universe. Deity is thus imminent in all men, and all men participate in divine reason. <clears throat> Men's minds come from the one mind of the universe, their bodies from the earth. Hence, as Farquharson noted, quote, Mind transcends particularity, bridging the gulf which in appearance divides men with their individual persons, wills, ends, senses, from one another by means of the reason which they have in common. End quote. Mind is thus the one, and divine body and bodies and things material are the many and earthy the preeminence of the one is thus very apparent it represents the true commonwealth of man the philosopher king was for marcus aurelius the binding quality whereby the oneness of being was brought together in terms of reason quote the sentence of plato was ever on his lips well was it for states if either philosophers were rulers or rulers philosophers. End quote. The world of the senses had a monotonous similarity. Particularity had little meaning for him. His view of the games was not one of moral horror, but of ascetic boredom and disdain. Quote, As the shows in the amphitheatre 
and such places grate upon thee as being an everlasting repetition of the same sight, and the similarity makes the spectacle pall, such must be the effect of the whole of life. For everything above and below is ever the same, and the result of the same things. How long then? End quote. He was not the cold rationalist Cicero had been. Both Marcus Aurelius and Fronto believed in dream cures, but he prized the ruling reason. All else in him was mere flesh and a little breath. The asceticism of reason was more developed than in Cicero. Reason, neither in man nor in the universal mind of nature, is omnipotent, and it is wholly good and free of evil. Quote, the universal substance is docile and ductile, and the reason that controls it has no motive in itself to do wrong, for it hath no wrongness and doeth no wrong, nor is anything harmed by it. But all things come into being and fulfil their purpose as it directs. End quote. It is curious that scholars have seen, as did some churchmen, a semi-Christian in Marcus Aurelius, when Christianity holds to the fallen, covenant-breaking nature of the total man. Man, said Marcus Aurelius, is body and soul. Quote, to the body, indeed, all things are indifferent, for it cannot concern itself with them, but to the mind only those things are indifferent which are not its own activities, and all those things that are its own activities are in its own power. End quote. What, then, is the power of this good, free, and sovereign mind? It faces an alien world, and to all events it must say, quote, this has come from God, and this is due to the conjunction of fate and the contexture of the world's web, and some such coincidence and chance. End quote. History, moreover, is cyclical, changes the universal experience, a perpetual transformation, and in some sort decay, personal and universal. The physical world must decay and change, but all quote, the parts of the whole and that nature has compromised in the universe, must inevitably perish, taking perish to mean be changed, end quote. If the gods are not concerned about the universe, quote, an impious belief, still, if it be so, I say, it is still in my power to take counsel about myself, and it is for me to consider my own interest, end quote. Marcus Aurelius knew his function, Quote, Revere the gods, save mankind. Life is short. This only is the harvest of earthly existence, a righteous disposition and social acts. End quote. The social goal, the one, Rome, was as paramount for Marcus Aurelius as for his Roman forebears, as for his early Roman forebears. The alternative, as he saw it, was either oneness or anarchy. Quote, but art thou discontented with thy share in the whole? Recall the alternative, either providence or atoms, and the abundant proves that there are the abundant proves there are that the universe is, as it were, a state. End quote. <clears throat> the alternative was either a universal state, a whole which absorbed all and moved through a repetitious cycle of growth and decay, or universal anarchy and particularity. It was for him a choice between law and no law. In this picture, the individual was nothing in the whole. Quote, Thou hast subsisted as part of the whole. 
thou vanish into that which begat thee, or rather thou shalt be taken again into its seminal reason by a process of change. Therefore, quote, cease not to think of the universe as one living being possessed of a single substance and a single soul, and now all things trace back to its single sentence, and how it does all things by a single impulse, end quote. There is scarcely anything stable in being, for all substance is a river, is as a river in ceaseless flow. This is small comfort, but the choice is either anarchy or this, a unity and a plan and a providence. There was a universe and a void or chaos surrounding this area of order, and the power of mind or reason in its, art, in its ability to trace the plan of all this and comprehend the cyclical regeneration of all things. Mind or reason, therefore, understood the dialectic of chaos and order that had the power of preferring order. Marcus Aurelius had, has been described as a good but very worried man. The brutally empty nature of his Stoic faith has been tellingly summarised by Cochrane in his comparison of the meditations with Augustine's confessions. Quote, the work of Augustine was addressed to God, that of Aurelius was addressed to himself. End quote. In his dying words to his family, his son Commodus, and his friends, he urged that his son be given good advice in terms of the philosophy he had laid down, for it is difficult to check and put a limit on our desires when power is their minister. Section 10. Commodus. <clears throat> Commodus, 161-192, had already been regarded as a philosopher, together with his father, and Athenagoras, the Athenian, a Christian philosopher, had addressed a plea for the Christians, quote, to the emperors Marcus Aurelius Antoninus and Lucius Aurelius Commodus, conquerors of Armenia and Sarmatia, and more than all, philosophers, end quote. Commodus, who came to power in 180, was philosopher enough to see no hope in his father's philosophy. His Gilt bronze bust in the Victoria and Albert Museum in London shows him wearing the Phrygian Liberty Cap of Chaos, the cosmic cap with the seven stars. This star-spangled cap designated the shepherd of the stars. It was common also to Mithras worship, which Commodus also favoured. On Commodus it meant clearly world domination. Commodus appeared in a procession of the Isis cult as an image-bearer, Commodus exemplified the regenerating power of chaos in his life. He maintained a double harem of 300 boys and 300 women and took a commanding part in the games. He assumed the name of the Blessed Commodus, and eastern cities, probably taking their cue from Rome, expressed their delight with a coin carrying the inscription, Under the reign of Commodus the world experiences an age of blessing. Later he portrayed himself as Hercules Redivivus, the strong man sent from heaven and armed with superhuman powers to set the poor world free from the powers of destruction. Finally, his apparently Christian favourite wife, Marcia, arranged for his assassination. The horror for Commodus felt by Gibbon and other historians cannot altogether conceal the fact of his popularity. 
it was necessary in order to prevent disorders to state that Commodus had died of an apoplexy and that the senator Pertinax had already succeeded to the throne. The senate reviled the dead Commodus and Pertinax sought to institute ancient ideas of reform. The son of a freed slave who had become wealthy, Pertinax had bought his way to the throne and now he sought to reform it and avoid a continuous bribery. He issued coins, declaring himself to be emperor through the providence of the gods. The army assassinated him in the same year and sold the throne to General Didius Julianus, whose coins realistically proclaimed the source of chaos and revolution. Through unanimous resolution of the army, chosen emperor. Commodus had been assassinated on the first day of 193. By June 1, 193, Pertinax and his successor Didius Julianus had both been killed by the army. When Septimius Severus of Punic ancestry and speaking Greek and Latin with a Punic accent became emperor later in the same year, he declared himself an Antonine by adoption and claimed Commodus as his brother. Whatever the Senate felt and modern historians believe concerning Commodus, he was clearly a popular figure. Septimius Severus had power which was sufficient for legitimacy and Senate approval as well. His relationship to the popular Commodus was needed to establish with him to establish him with the people. The triumph of the religion of chaos in Rome under Julius Caesar had served to unite Rome more firmly with the empire and to pave the way for the empire to triumph over Rome itself. Septimius Severus had represented such a triumph over the feeble tradition of the Senate, and many an emperor rose to power because of his relationship to the cult of chaos. It is not enough to say that the army began to name the emperors, because the army did not always or by any means limit itself to naming military men. Religious enthusiasm was a major aspect, as in the fervour generated in the army when it saw the 14-year-old Elagabalus, quote, looking like Bacchus, end quote, preside as pontiff of Elagabal at Emesa, and was then easily won over to proclaiming himself, to proclaiming him emperor against Macrinus. The quick disillusionment with Elagabalus does not alter the original religious and then monetary loyalty to him. Section 11. Last Hopes in Chaos. The messianic attempts to save Rome continued. Gallienus, 253-268, sole emperor after the capture of his father Valerian, 260-268, issued a coin of the most ambitious design which included a portrayal of himself with the wreath of a Ceres yet wearing a beard. Quote, this can only mean that he looked upon himself as the universal god in human form. Even the conflict between the male and the female principle, which separated the gods of Olympus, has been vanquished. All that God and the worship of God meant in heaven and on earth was concentrated in him. The reverse side, the ancient conflict between west and east, has been overcome and all strife on earth is over. That is the meaning of the high-flown high inscription, Ubiqui Pax, Peace on Earth. This coin, then, 
proclaims a twofold gospel to the nations, blessing of the earth and world peace. It is the culmination of the imperial philosophy which lies behind this gospel. In the emperor, the conflict between heaven and earth, between west and east, between male and female, between power and blessing has been overcome. In the emperor, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily and gives life and peace to the universe in the year of salvation. End quote. The import is very plain. Not only is time and history the determinative force in the universe, but all meaning can be and is decisively incarnate in the Roman state and its emperor. There is no other way of salvation and no other area of determination. Here, the true one is fully present, and this is the true area of its manifestation. Meaning and incarnation are truly and even exhaustively temporal. It was the theoretical triumph of the idea of Rome, but it was also its defeat. The sick and decaying empire mocked the claims of its philosopher rulers. In republic and empire, Chaos and reason had both become incarnate over and over again, and they had failed wretchedly. Men were looking to another incarnation, and in spite of savage persecutions, turning to him. For some generations now, the real enemy of Rome had been neither the advocates of republic nor of empire, of reason nor of chaos, but very clearly, Jesus Christ. It was Christ or Rome, and the emperors knew it. Not even the later compromise with Christianity could obscure that fact. And in the 5th century, when the barbarian invasions began, Trevis petitioned its emperor for restoration not of its walls, but of its arena and games. According to Salvian, the people had been shouting themselves hoarse at the games while that city was being taken in 406. He described the nude and torn bodies of both sexes in the streets, Quote, torn to pieces by birds and dogs, and the deadly stench of the dead brought death to the living. End quote. Yet, quote, a few nobles who survived destruction demanded circuses from the emperors as the greatest relief for the destroyed city. End quote. Those who point to the earthly death, those who point to the early death of the Roman gods, forget that the intensely religious exercises of the games survived to the end and were, with the cult of the emperor, the essential religious manifestation of Roman life. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.